from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. We are at the 91st Annual PCSA, Pacific Coast Surgical Association meeting in Carlsbad, California. And I'm really excited to host our inaugural guest on the show, one Dr. Matt Martin. Dr. Martin is an extensively published and active trauma acute care surgeon and one of the leaders in our field. His research interests are diverse, ranging from the surgical management of obesity to non-invasive hemodynamics and functional assessment of ICU patients. He's a retired colonel with the U.S. Army and the current trauma research and education director in the Department of Surgery at Scripps Mercy Medical Center. Prior to this, he completed a fellowship at LAC-USC and is the former trauma medical director and director of surgical research at Madigan Army Medical Center. Matt holds numerous leadership positions on our key national and international trauma professional organizations. And last summer, Matt was gracious enough to share some of his recent work on junctional torso hemorrhage control at our fifth annual Harbor UCLA Trauma Critical Care Conference. And given how well received that was, I thought who better than Matt to have on as our first guest. During the course of our interview, Matt and I will review some of the recommendations, both in the pre-hospital and in-hospital settings, as well as across the military and civilian sectors for both recognizing and managing trauma patients at risk for bleeding. Let's take a listen. Yeah, so I think the military experience, which is similar to the civilian experience, other than you're dealing with a much higher proportion of injured patients who have major injuries and major hemorrhage when you're dealing with blast and gunshot wounds is your primary mechanism. I think the first thing is you really need to divide it into which phase of care you're in. If you're in the pre-hospital and pre-hemorrhage control phase or if you're in the in-hospital phase. And, and some of our lessons are, one, the money to be made is in the pre-hospital phase. You know, that's when 80 to 90 percent of our preventable deaths are occurring. So waiting to the in-hospital phase is waiting too late. The other factor is you really need to have your resuscitation endpoint and goal in mind and understand that it's different in those phases and, and what your optimal targets are and what can reliably be done in the pre-hospital environment where you don't have all the advanced monitoring. So we, we've taken, I would say, generally a really simple approach to this in the military because we want you know all of our personnel to be able to do it, which is a, a rapid assessment, including mental status and vital signs. Uh, and, and vital signs can be as simple as a radial pulse. And this was almost heresy of if they're mentating and they have a palpable radial pulse, the answer was you don't give them any fluids, you HEPLOC them. In fact, you can give them some oral fluids if needed, which blows some people's minds. You, you can actually, you can give a trauma patient some water to drink. It's not going to kill them. But really withholding resuscitation unless one of those two things is abnormal, unless their mental status is abnormal and or unless you don't have a radial pulse. And at that point, you can start resuscitation. And there's been various debates over how you should start that resuscitation, which have evolved. And generally, the answer now has gone to if you do need to give them fluid, it should be blood. The, the most recent uh, tactical combat casualty care guidelines have come out. It, it used to be when we didn't have blood products pre-hospital, the answer was Hextend or hypertonic saline, a small bolus. But now the preferred products numbers, I think one through four or five are blood products. Uh, so whole blood is the top choice, pack cells and or FFP if you don't have access to whole blood. And then 
you know, only a non-blood fluid if you really have no other option. Great. I mean, in the past, we heard so much about the potential benefits of hypertonic saline and, you know, whether it was three or 7.5%, having these small aqualots available that are transportable, whatever happened to hypertonic saline as a resuscitation fluid? And is that something that you're using currently? Yeah, well, uh, like many things, data happened. So, so there were, there were a couple randomized studies uh, again, none in the military setting. These are all in civilian setting. But generally, what they showed is there was no benefit. Now, now the problem with those studies is I think it's almost foolhardy to give a single 250cc bolus pre-hospital and then look at an outcome like 30-day mortality and, and say, oh, there was no difference. It's interesting because the animal and the basic science and translational work is, is pretty overwhelmingly in favor of, of at least the fact that hypertonic saline is much better than normal saline or LR, your standard crystalloids, in terms of its inflammatory profile. For the military setting, obviously, we also talk about cube and weight and you know how much a medic can carry. And so having a fluid that gives you a bigger bang for the buck has to weighs less, takes less volume. Uh, even if it's just equivalent, that, that obviously is a selling point in our environment. And that's why they went to uh, hypertonic saline was listed as the preferred fluid. It was not available in enough quantities. So then we went to Hextend as the backup choice. But again, th- those were mainly, those weren't because of outcome benefits. Those were because those were lighter to carry and had better volume expansion. And as I said, now now we've gone to the preferred fluid being whole blood. I still think, actually, the one place hypertonic saline is used routinely in the military environment and a lot in the civilian environment is TBI. The, uh, the TBI protocol still calls for hypertonic saline, definitely in the military environment. You'll very rarely see mannitol being given, almost never pre-hospital. But everyone gets put on a hypertonic saline bolus and drip if they have significant TBI. And so on the topic of TBI, uh, thinking about those guidelines, palpable pulse and rousable, how do you manage that or balance that when it comes to a patient who might also have a concomitant TBI? Does your um, sort of threshold change in terms of when you're going to start resuscitation? And then what are you targeting as an outcome or endpoint? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question and, and one that's still a big topic of debate in, in both settings because the, even the, the civilian literature has supported hypotensive or permissive hypotension in resuscitation. But all the studies, of course, have the caveat, we excluded TBI patients because we're afraid of lowering their MAP and lowering their cerebral perfusion pressure. Uh, it's interesting, though, that there, there's very little data that permissive hypotensive strategy is harmful in TBI patients, and there is some data that it actually still results in better outcomes. There's definite animal data that it does. So I think the answer there is, is I would not alter my resuscitation for a patient where there's proven or suspected hemorrhage, unless you've completely ruled it out, I would still treat them with permissive hypotension. And if a patient has a palpable radial pulse, they generally have, and they're mentating, you know they have cerebral perfusion. <clears throat> And so outside of the palpable radial pulse, where we would assume that there's at least a systolic blood pressure of 80 or maybe 90 millimeters mercury, if it's a bounding radial pulse, are you using or are we looking at other potential measures of quote unquote stability? For example, the shock index, or there's been a lot more literature coming out lately on a narrowed pulse pressure and its predictive ability 
for identifying hemorrhagic shock. Yeah, and and I think research has shown there's there's a bunch of measures that papers will come out saying this is a superior measure, but when you look at it, it's like a area under the receiver curve value that's 0.03 different, so st- maybe statistically better, but in real life use. We actually just submitted a paper looking at this in the military cohort, looking at a bunch of those different parameters. And it does appear shock index is superior to just systolic blood pressure, uh, and it definitely predicted outcomes better. There's also now a reverse shock index, and then there's also shock index plus GCS factored in. And actually, we found the shock index plus GCS was the best in terms of predicting mortality and morbidity. So, so I think shock index is, is a reasonable parameter to use. Does it get you a much above simply looking at blood pressure? That I'm not sure. Does it get you much above looking at mentation and radial pulse? Uh, again, I'm not sure, but at least in the data says it has a slightly better predictive ability. Yeah, and for those uh, unfamiliar with the shock index, that's really your heart rate over your systolic blood pressure. And so you can imagine if that you're in a compensated or uncompensated shock-like state, you're going to have a tachycardia in response to that blood loss and hypovolemia uh, accompanied by a decrease in your systolic blood pressure. So as that shock index number increases, the potential for uh, a needed intervention, uh, transfusion, or operative intervention is increased. So I would uh, refer the listeners to the Western Trauma Association paper released last uh, year on the pre-hospital resuscitation guidelines for injured patients. But I wanted to change gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about whole blood use and whole blood resuscitation. Is that something that we're starting to see across the U.S. or is this really something that's been limited to just a couple of centers where do you see this progressing or evolving? Because this really seems like something that may have a meaningful impact on outcomes. Well, it's it's something that I think 10 years ago, everybody was saying we'll never see this in the U.S. at civilian centers. Uh, we have to remember it was used by the military at the beginning of the wars. Not We weren't going in saying this is a much better resuscitation fluid. We were going in saying this is all we have. Uh, you know, when you're carrying only 10 units of pack cells, no FFP and platelets, and you get severely bleeding patients, you really had no other choice other than to do a walking blood bank and get fresh whole blood. Now, there are now multiple civilian trauma centers that are using whole blood. Uh, I, I do think it's important to understand we're talking about different products. So the warm, fresh whole blood is what we used at the beginning of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There you're talking about you're taking a unit of blood from somebody, giving it to another person. Generally, it's type specific. Now we are using in the military setting and all the civilian hospitals, because fresh whole blood is not an approved FDA product, are using cold stored whole blood, which is uh, low titer O, universal donor or used as a universal donor. And there are multiple trauma centers now in the U.S. that have started using it. We've started using it for over a year now at Scripps Mercy. San Antonio system has a big experience. Houston system has a big experience. Pittsburgh and others. And I'd say every every month or so, there's more trauma centers standing up whole blood programs. I think the, the military data especially was pretty compelling. So I'd say I would predict most level one trauma centers are going to be standing up whole blood resuscitation programs. Right. And then in relation to uh, what's happening right now in the pre-hospital setting for identifying patients and 
uh, hemorrhagic shock. Uh, outside of things like vital signs in your system, are the pre-hospital personnel using anything like point-of-care lactates or other quote-unquote biomarkers to help uh, triage these patients at risk for bleeding? Yeah, our our system, they generally aren't because at least in, in San Diego, we are talking universally very short pre-hospital transport times. We don't have a big rural catchment area like some other systems do. So at least in our system, they haven't because we're looking at very short pre-hospital times. And even if you identified it, really not a whole lot of time to do any significant interventions. Systems where you do have longer transport times or you have a big rural catchment area. My previous job was also working in Portland where we did have a big rural catchment area and it would be prolonged transport or transfer times. That's where I, I think you can incorporate something like point of care lactate or some of the advanced monitoring capabilities. Uh, I don't think anyone yet has been demonstrated to be superior and it's the experience has been so scattershot that there's not a lot of good data to say, you know, is it this measure that's helping or is it the system? I, I think probably if I had to choose one right now, I think point of care lactate probably has the best data, but I do think there's a lot of interesting newer data about some of the advanced monitoring techniques, looking at things like heart rate variability, or there's another one looking at what's called a compensatory reserve index. And, and I couldn't explain that to you because there are proprietary formulas, but they're looking at some very fine physiologic data that you can get from non-invasive monitoring. And, and if we're you know, looking at what's the future going to be to identify in those patients early, I, I guess it's going to be one of those advanced non-invasive monitors. Yeah, and on the topic of non-invasive monitoring, several years ago when I was a fellow in San Diego, all the rage at that time seemed to be the STO2 monitoring. And so this is a, a non-invasive way of really assessing capillary blood flow in an extremity. Whatever happened to that, it kind of seemed to just die off. Yeah, well, I think it was two things. It was, you know, the technology is somewhat cumbersome. And, you know, you have a certain percentage of patients. And it's one of those things that works worse, the worse perfusion the patient has. And those are the patients you actually need something that works better. Right. So so if you don't have great extremity perfusion, that's one of those technologies that doesn't work as well. It's less reliable. It's, you know, cumbersome. You have to put on the patient and it follows the patient around. But but I think probably the, the biggest factor was just people who are using it saw, well, you know, it was okay, but it didn't give you much additional value or data above what you were normally doing with your standard vital signs, you know, with pretty routine access to an immediate lactate or base deficit, it just didn't seem to be adding too much to what was already out there. Right. Now, one of the things that you had mentioned was uh, pre-hospital transport times, which is obviously an important factor uh, when you're thinking about whether to resuscitate a patient or not. Uh, the other thing that we oftentimes uh, put into the decision tree is the mechanism of injury. So earlier we were talking about blunt TBI patients. LA County, what we found is that a lot of patients with penetrating torsal trauma, despite data showing the benefits of permissive hypotension are still coming in, running normal saline and having infusions of crystalloid dripping in. Is that something that you've seen? And what do we do to change that culture? It's, it's definitely something we've seen and still see, although I've noticed much less of it. And it's, I think it's gotten out there now, but you're right. It, it was very difficult, especially pre-hospital 
to just get out the concept of it, it's okay, don't run IV fluids in. If you think the patient's bleeding, again, unless you know they are obviously not perfusing, uh, just don't give them fluid. Or, you know, I used to try to do this when the patient would arrive in the ER and I would walk to the bedside as the residents were doing all the real work like they usually do. And I just kind of stand around and watch. <laughs> I would clamp the IV. The fluid was always running wide open. I'd clamp it off and then I'd turn around and go back to the foot of the bed. And invariably, within five minutes, I'd look back and someone has unclamped it and it's running full bore again. And, and, and I think it just takes a dedication to changing the culture. Uh, and, and really what it is, is education. I, you know, once people understand the concepts, it's actually not that hard, but you do have to change culture to make that happen because it's just such a natural reflex, right? If, if, you know, they were injured, they fell, you know, they fell and scraped their knee, uh, they must need a liter of fluid on their way to the ER. Yeah. And for those uh, unfamiliar with this concept of popping the clot or permissive hypotension, patients coming in with penetrating torsal trauma, if they've got a vascular injury, uh, the last thing we want to do is to artificially raise that mean arterial pressure when there's valuable clot forming that's potentially walling off that injury. And so certainly, again, if patients are awake or arousable and they got a palpable pulse, these are not patients we should be aggressively resuscitating. These are patients we want in the operating room, the clamp on the injured vessel, at which point it's kind of, I guess, dealer's choice in terms of how we want to resuscitate them. Yeah, I also think that's something where some of these advanced techniques and technologies can be effective, not so much at guiding what to do, but in helping people feel comfortable not doing something. So that's where something like, you know, a point of care lactate or heart rate variability monitor, where somebody might be tempted, oh, we need to give them another liter, you know, they'll get that number back that says, well, you know, they're doing just fine their lactate's okay, their heart rate variability is normal. Okay, I, I, I can withhold on doing that. Uh, so, so I think there's as much value in some of these things as, mm-hmm. as for preventing people doing unnecessary interventions as there are in prompting necessary interventions. So getting back to the trauma bay then, Matt, can you take us through your approach to a potentially unstable patient? So let's say they bring in a patient to the ER and you're getting your hand off from the paramedics and whether it's multiple gunshot wounds with hypotension or severe polytrauma, what's your basic approach to figuring out is this patient sick or not sick? And I'm not sure what sort of terms you're used to using, whether it's compensated versus uncompensated shock or stable versus unstable. But one thing that I have noticed these days is that uh, people tend to kind of downplay or completely bypass the physical exam. In terms of the initial assessment, what are or what is the value of the physical exam of the trauma patient? Yeah, so one, physical exam is helpful. It's not dead, even though many of us use the CAT scanner as our physical exam. Uh, (laughs) I I prefer sick, not sick, which, you know, is very simple in my mind. And and I try as the patient is rolling in, in first 10 seconds, I put them into that category of, are they sick or are they, okay, not sick? And most of them, obviously, usually it's not sick. And then I can back off and I can you know, let the, the nurses and the residents run the resuscitation evaluation. But if they're in that sick category, that's when that triggers an immediate first thing is search for hemorrhage. Uh, and the fortunate thing is you can do that very rapidly. And, and what I usually do is I'll, people talk about, well, feeling the toes. And if the toes are warm, I'm okay. I usually just go and feel a femoral pulse. 
and strong femoral pulse, I, that's when I can step back and say, okay, you know, they, they've got at least a blood pressure of 80 or 90. Mm-hmm. I don't see an external hemorrhage of, okay, let's, let's let everyone do the usual workup. A, a very weak or non-palpable femoral pulse, that's where that triggers that immediate, okay, first thing, find bleeding if it's going on. That's also the patient I will start resuscitation. And again, it, we have whole blood now, so I would hang whole blood and do that rapid evaluation for a source of hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. The, the nice thing about looking for hemorrhage is, for somebody to be in that degree of shock, that's a lot of blood loss, and it is not hard usually to find where that blood loss is, unless it was at the scene and they lost it all externally where you should see some active hemorrhage. There's only a few body cavities you can lose that much blood, and, and intracranial isn't one of them. It's either chest, abdomen, pelvis, and people talk about the way well, you could have bilateral femur fractures and, uh, and right. bleed into your thighs. I, I've yet to see that as a source of exsanguination. Yeah, same here. So it's almost always chest, abdomen, pelvis. And fortunately, a chest X-ray or an ultrasound immediately rules out that or rules it into your source of hemorrhage. And then that leaves abdomen, pelvis. And that's where then you'll go down the route of your fast exam. If that's negative but they're still unstable. And I think that might be a source. I'll do a DPA, a diagnostic peritoneal aspirate, which is not a lavage. It's just putting a needle or catheter in and aspirating. If you get gross blood out, then that's where they're bleeding from. If you don't, that's pretty reliable that they're not bleeding to death intraperitoneally. That still is retroperitoneum and pelvis is a potential source. And again, pelvic x-ray is your next step. And if all of those are negative, then you can pretty reliably say, okay, they're not exsanguinating into their chest or abdomen. And, and that whole thing can take two to three minutes at most. Yeah, I know. That's a great approach. And I love the sick, not sick a way of dichotomizing any patient, whether you're in the trauma bay or going to a rapid response call or evaluating a potentially sick patient on the ward. Before you cross that threshold into the patient's sort of active care area or even from the sort of door of the room, make that determination. And if that patient is sick, take a look around, see what resources are there. And if you're uncomfortable at all, call for help. And we really can't emphasize that enough, especially to you know the new house staff or medical students. There's always help available. And so if you think a patient's sick, call for help. Yeah. And, and the other thing I like to tell them, especially new interns, but it, the same holds true for trauma is your, your approach to the workup of any problem. And, and I tell them, you know, I'm a constant pessimist. So I always expect the worst and then I'm pleasantly surprised in most instances. But a lot of people will start the workup with what's common. And, and I really try to emphasize your first thing is what will kill the patient, then what's common, then the zebras. And if you always focus on the first thing of, well, what could kill this patient, you're not going to miss those life-threatening things that you might miss if you start working up well. If they're tachycardic, it's probably pain because bleeding's less likely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Always rule out the uh, two or three things that are going to kill the patients immediately. Once you've done that, move on to the more common things. And yeah, zebras last. So you made a couple of fantastic points there. Obviously, if someone's coming in through the trauma bay and we think they're in shock, the number one, two, three causes are bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. And the five places they're going to bleed to the point that they're hypotensive or unstable are going to be the street or external, chest, abdomen, pelvis slash retroperitoneum, and then the often talked about bilateral femurs. 
So when we look at the American College of Surgeons classification of hemorrhage, it's sort of this complicated table. You've got four classes of hemorrhage, one through four, with four being the worst. And we can sort of guesstimate EBL and we can guesstimate the percent blood loss. I think when we look at that chart, a lot of the things that it focuses on is the physical exam findings or are the Mm -hmm. physical exam findings. So heart rate, blood pressure, urine output. How important is it to get a Foley in these patients? This is always an area of controversy. I think uh, for me personally, I always want to have a Foley in and Mm -hmm. monitor the urine output initially. And that's probably the only situation where I care if someone has 0.5 cc's per kg uh, per hour, not in the post-operative setting or any other situation. But I have colleagues and partners who think, ah, it's not a very reliable or accurate way of assessing end organ perfusion. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, obviously it's a measure of end organ perfusion. If your kidneys aren't perfusing, you know, you're not going to make a whole lot of urine. I'd say the, I'd say I don't use that in terms of the initial decision-making, because like you said, you, 0.5 per hour means you, you've had to take an hour to at least know that. So, so at least initially when the patient comes in, I'm not rushing to put a Foley in because again, I know that information won't be of use to me at least right then. For following their resuscitation though, yeah, I, I think that's critical. You know, if you have normal urine output, you can be reasonably reassured that at least the kidneys are perfusing, uh, which means most of your other organs should be perfusing. The only place I really emphasize putting a Foley in immediately is if I'm worried about a bladder injury, because I, I think that's that's probably the best test for is there a bladder injury? Yes, no. You know, if they, if they have hematuria, yes. If they don't know, I, I don't use it for my initial, do they need resuscitation? But I will use it for guiding the resuscitation. Yeah, you know, is, is it perfect? No, it's probably less reliable in the elderly, but, but it's, it's a reasonable marker and as reliable as, as any other that we have right now for end organ perfusion. Great. And so in the most recent uh, 10th edition of ATLS, they've finally added actually a biochemical marker or the lactate or base deficit. What took so long? I mean, this is something that I sort of look at your CV and your publications. And 25 years ago, you were writing a bunch of papers on the utility of an admission lactate or base deficit, improved survival when these lactates and base deficits cleared. And so why is it taking so long for us to kind of include this as one of those endpoints that we should be assessing in the trauma bay or early in the uh, post-hospitalization phase? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. One is just the cost and the ease of getting one. I, I remember, you, you probably remember this, of initially when we were running lactates, it would be we would have to get an arterial sample. It'd have to be on ice and, and we would be literally running it down to the lab. <laughs> and if it was more than 10 minutes, they wouldn't run it. Right. Uh, so we just didn't have point of care lactate or base deficit, although base deficit came much earlier than point of care lactate. So, so one was just the availability. The other, I think, though, is, is it doesn't help you in most patients because, again, most patients are okay. They're not actively bleeding. You know, they don't need a whole lot done to them. So you really have to identify the patient population that it helps you, which is a subpopulation. And then how much it helps you above your standard vital signs and clinical assessment. I think that's what people still debate. But I think the data is pretty firmly for trauma, for sepsis. Lactate is still one of the best predictors of mortality and morbidity. Lactate clearance, even better than, than initial lactate. The same thing with base deficit, I think slightly less predictive than lactate. 
Uh, but, but I think now that it's so commonly available, uh, you know, I, I use it routinely. Obviously, it's in the sepsis guidelines now. Uh, so, so I think I think at least most people now, you know, have bought on that it's a u- useful marker and an en- a decent endpoint of resuscitation. Yeah, and that's certainly how we use it as well. Now, more and more recently, um, I've been hearing from from different folks about the usefulness or how unuseful lactate clearance is with the notion that it's not just a marker for hypoperfusion or a switch from aerobic to anaerobic glycolysis, but maybe it's a a normal physiologic response to stress that as the body releases epinephrine and we're stimulating beta receptors centrally, peripherally, it's releasing lactate. And that all of these concerns with having to clear the lactates are a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so I'd say, you know, first, are, are you a, a practicing scientist? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the data is pretty incontrovertible. But, but you're right. People can and do and rightfully argue about, well, what's causing that of a elevated lactate? Because we would always say that, well, it's anaerobic metabolism. And, and I still don't know if that's absolutely true. In some cases, it probably is. Right. But it's also a function of hepatic clearance. It's also a function of normal production. It's also a function of muscle injury. But, but whatever, I, I'm a pragmatist, whatever the cause actually doesn't concern me. It's just, does it predict poor outcomes? And does it predict better outcomes when your lactate normalizes when you come in and it's elevated. And, and I think the data there is pretty incontrovertible. It does, and it predicts that better than most other markers we have available. Yeah, agreed. Now, sometimes it seems like it can go to an extreme, though. I know we'll admit patients to the SICU overnight and, you know, we'll have a plan in place in terms of what our goals are. We get caught up in the operating room, seeing other traumas. And when I go to round in the morning, I hear that patients have received eight or 10 liters of crystalloid. And I kind of joke with the house staff, like, great job diluting out the lactate. <laughs> uh, and some people have called this the lacto bolus reflex. Is it really something that we need to be trending every couple of hours to make sure that it normalizes? Or are we more interested in looking at the initial lactate saying that it's maybe normal versus elevated. What are your thoughts well, on that? Well, I think, I think one, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's a good marker to stop people from doing things. So right. if your lactate is normal when you come in or if, and usually it normalizes pretty quickly if you're doing the right things, then, then it's a good marker for terminating resuscitation, which is probably more important. Yeah, I, I worry much more now about over-resuscitation than I do about under-resuscitation. Uh, I think it's a bigger problem, and, and clearly we've seen a lot of the effects of it's called dry land saltwater drowning, <laughs> you know, where every patient used to be on the percussive ventilator with ARDS in an open abdomen. I think lactate is useful. I think checking it too frequently is bad. So, so I never check it any more frequently than like every eight hours. I, I've you know seen people order Q four hours. And every time it comes back elevated, even if it's improving, they start giving more boluses. And I just say, as long as it's trending down with what we're doing, you know, if it went from six to four, four should not prompt, oh, I need to give three more liters of fluid. Four right. should be, okay, we're, we're doing what we're doing. It's trending down. Absolutely. Uh, you know, continue what we're doing, but don't start giving more and more resuscitation because, you know, you don't win any prizes for normalizing in 10 hours versus 12. 
Right, right. Earlier, we talked about the workup of the unstable or sick patient, and you did mention ultrasound, particularly mm-hmm. to rule in or out uh, intraperitoneal hemorrhage or fluid. Are you using real-time POCUS or ultrasound mm-hmm. in your initial resuscitation? Yeah, and, and actually, one one last point on lactate, uh, and, and I'll, I'll ask you this, and this, yeah. this drives me crazy. <laughs> Uh, and, and I just see this all the time now. If I get a call from the resident or the ER, patient, you know, bad abdominal pain, you know, we're worried about the bowel. Lactate's normal. So, you know, so there's, there's no ischemia. So we don't have to worry about that. Uh, and, and that's one of the big misconceptions uh, about lactate that continues to drive me crazy. Yeah. So a, a normal lactate does not mean that you're going to just relax, especially in the setting of an ischemic bowel or workup for mesenteric ischemia. And we see this quite frequently. We see patients who are admitted, they've got some abdominal pain, maybe it's out of, out of proportion to the physical exam. They get the standard lactate and CT scan. And we're looking for things like hyperlactatemia or lactic acidosis with evidence of pneumatosis on the CT scan. And when we don't see either of those things, we kind of stop paying attention. But I think depending on the specific clinical situation, normal lactate, especially in someone who's got all the right risk factors, the right clinical presentation, and you're looking at the entire picture, not just one value in isolation, you really want to be focusing on the whole patient. Yeah. If there's one message uh, to get out there on lactate for me, it's, it's the lactate has no predictive value for ischemic bowel in the initial evaluation period. It it will not be elevated until late in the process or after that bowel gets reperfused. I've I've seen a patient with entire foregut and midgut dead, stone cold normal lactate. So so I, I, I wish people would stop checking that or at least stop checking that as a measure of Oh, if it's normal, I don't have ischemic bowel. Yeah, we just had a patient about three weeks ago with uh, complete pneumatosis, uh, full thickness, necrotic bowel, and their lactate was completely normal. And so, uh, yeah, a normal lactate in that setting, not reassuring. So getting back to ultrasound, are, are you using that in the trauma bay? I mean, we're seeing a lot more EFAST, which is great for looking at the presence of a pneumo, yes or no, or maybe a hemothorax or fluid in the chest. But are you looking at the IVC? Are we looking at the heart above and just beyond tamponade, yes or no? What's the LV look like? Is the RV full or not? Yeah, great question. And and I think that comes down to what's your comfort and skill with ultrasound. I I I love ultrasound. I use it frequently. I, I would say it's it's one area where emergency medicine has put us to shame with how they, they've incorporated ultrasound training and expertise in their training programs. And we have fallen so far behind. And I still see graduating surgical residents, even, even trauma surgeons, and even in the military who are going to deploy, and they have no idea how to do a basic FAST exam on That's their own. That's scary. Uh, and, and having been in many deployed settings in the military, ultrasound was critical because that's all you had. You, we didn't have CAT scan. Many times we didn't have an x-ray. Uh, and and I was, actually, I was one who I finished residency training and, and even fellowship training, and I never had to do the FAST exam. It, would, it was radiology and residency. It was emergency medicine and fellowship. And I'd, 
I'd look at the screen and, and kind of pretend like I knew what I was looking at. But right before deployment, you know, that's when it finally hit me of, oh, I really need to know how to use ultrasound and know right. how to do it on my own. So, so sure. we arranged a little training course with radiology. And I can count on one hand the number of times when I regret it all not having a CAT scan. If you're good at ultrasound, it's an all-purpose tool. You can do rapid screening, again, for all the major causes of bleeding and most of the major causes of hypotension. So, so yeah, so I'm a big ultrasound fan. How do I use it? I like doing, we do an e-fast on every patient at Scripps and, and that's exactly what I like. So a standard fast exam and then a look at both lung fields, looking for pneumothorax and then also looking for hemothorax. And the hemothorax views are easy because they're the same two views of the upper quadrant from the fast exam. You just move the probe up a rib notch or two higher and you can see blood in the chest. The issue you're asking is about, you know, additional uses. So looking at the heart and things like the heart filling, injection fraction, looking at the IVC. That's where I'd say there's less good data. There's a lot of additional reasons for concerns about where it could be misleading. And and then you're definitely talking a a step up in the skill set. Yeah. One of the things that we've been talking about is, uh, especially among those patients who we know are bleeding and going to go to the operating room intubated on a ventilator, is having from the get-go in the emergency room, once they're intubated, dropping a TEE, taking that thing up to the operating room. And so when it comes to endpoints in patients who are actively bleeding outside of looking at the results of the TEG or whether or not the bleeding has stopped and are they still coagulopathic, is what's the heart doing during the resuscitation and while the MTP is going in? And can that maybe help change some of the over-resuscitation that we're seeing? Yeah. And and I think if if you're going to use any of those, I I would say looking at the heart is probably the best. So either transthoracic TE, if you have it, uh, you know, there's there's now at least one company making those uh, the small disposable TE probes you can put in and leave in for uh, right. 72 hours and guide resuscitation. I think those are very good. I have uh, a lot of concerns about the IVC ultrasound for guiding resuscitation. And that's just because I, IVC diameter and collapsibility is a function of so many things in addition to volume and, and just put, put the ultrasound on somebody's IVC and have them Valsalva. And you'll see the significant change that just comes from, you know, breathing patterns in Valsalva. Uh, it's a function of uh, cardiac contractility. It's a function of compliance. So, so I think the, the only real utility I think I've found in that is at the extremes. So if you have an IVC you can't see, then patient's probably hypovolemic. Uh, if you have an IVC that is dilated and not collapsible at all, you are either volume overloaded, you have tamponade, or you have some massive right heart failure. Uh, but then in between those, I, I haven't found it to be real useful. And, and I think most of the data is generally supporting that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's either flat or fat. And, you know, when we're looking at things like having a patient sniff to see if there's collapsibility, I always liken that to doing MIPS or NIFs in the ICU. And, you know, in some units I've worked in, they've included the ability to generate a negative inspiratory force as one of the criteria for whether or not a patient can be extubated. And like you said, they've got to understand what you're asking them to do. They've got to be cooperative. So there's so many variables that can lead you astray. 
And certainly in terms of the idea of a very juicy cava, uh, which might suggest uh, problems with right heart afterload or decreases in right heart contractility or overload, uh, there seems to be more and more literature, again, coming from the ER folks about uh, hepatic vein pulsatility and looking for biphasic flow as a potential predictor of volume overload. Yeah, I mean, IVC, IVC diameter does correlate to CVP. Right, so so the it's question a very becomes, useful number. Yeah, what do we what do we know about CVP, central venous pressure? We know it does not correlate with volume status. <laughs> right. We know it doesn't correlate with volume responsiveness, and and that's not even in sick patients. That's in healthy volunteers, and sick patients. So so yes, it does correlate with CVP, but as multiple studies have shown. You know, CVP is a coin flip about whether it's actually telling you anything about volume status or volume responsiveness. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been so much on the the use of CVP and it really seems to be a measure that's gone by the wayside. So Matt, I want to thank you for sharing your invaluable time and expertise with us. It's always a pleasure to hear you talk. Before we end the show, any parting messages for the listeners that joined us on rounds today? Well, uh, again, thanks for having me. This is a this is going to be a great podcast series. I'm looking forward to listening. I think the, some of the final take-home messages are it's, it's as important to know who not to resuscitate or when to stop as it is knowing who to resuscitate. Uh, I think for the hemorrhaging trauma patient, uh, whole blood, at least as of now, is probably the best individual fluid you could give. And if you don't have that, then either plasma or pack cells. And I think that the data is still up in the air about which of those, if you had to choose one, would be better. But I think concept-wise, probably sorting out the patient initially into sick versus not sick is is a very simple way yeah, to, to break it down. But also knowing, we talk about how do you resuscitate and what are your endpoints, but I think you got to have it in your mind of what am I resuscitating for and from? Mm. Am I resuscitating a bleeding patient and I'm trying to restore their oxygen delivery? Am I resuscitating you know, a septic patient who's hypovolemic and vasodilated? Am I resuscitating a TBI patient and their ICP and cerebral perfusion pressure is low and ICP is high? And, and those will be three completely different approaches to resuscitation. Absolutely. Right? So we talk about these universal endpoints, universal approaches. I think that's what you need to understand first. And, you know, whereas the one I'll focus on, what am I going to do to maximize oxygen delivery? The other I'm going to focus on, what am I going to do to maximize brain perfusion? And, and those are very different things. So I think having that in mind, then you can start talking about, okay, what's the optimal resuscitation and what endpoint am I going to use? Yeah, very valid points, Matt. Really appreciate that. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. I want to thank you, Matt, once again for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds and thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Uh, please do visit the website at traumaicurounds.ca or go to iTunes where you can subscribe to the show and do let your friends know about us. In the meantime, please stay safe and we'll talk soon.